All right, let's do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Fieldwork Podcast. I am Zach Johnson. I am Tara Vanderdusen. And I'm Mitchell Hora. A big thank you to the Walton Family Foundation for supporting podcast this season. And today on the show, Mitchell is actually going to tell us about all the cool stuff that he learned in the exotic land of Ohio. My notes say that he spent a whole bunch of time listening, which I know is very difficult for Mitchell because he normally spends most of his time talking. This is very true. Uh, I tend to talk a lot, but especially on this, um, I really wanted to just sit and listen. We were in Carroll, Ohio for Dave Brandt's field day. Dave Brandt, we had on the podcast, he's the godfather of soil health. We were out there for his field day. And uh, it was the evening that I recorded the one-on-one interview with Dave. We actually sat down as a group of us in a hotel. We got our boy, Johnny Vince Evans, and our producer, Todd, came to Ohio with me. And, uh, and we set up all these fancy bendy mics, and we hit record, and some, some real magic happened. We recorded for almost three hours. And yeah, I did not talk that much for an entire three hours. You talked for two and a half hours. Is that what you're... <laughs> I did not talk for two and a half hours. I talked for probably less than 10 minutes, maybe 15 of the entire three <laughs> hours. We're going to have to listen to the clips to Yeah, yeah, to you'll have to listen. That. Someone will have to listen to the whole thing and, and figure out how much I talked in it. Yeah, let's check these clips out. It wasn't, it wasn't that much. Hold on. So before we get into the clips, let me tee up kind of who, we're, who we had here, okay? So we were recording a, a live webinar, and it was with Dave Brandt who's the godfather of soil health, a farmer in Ohio. We had Rick Clark, who was kind of running the show. Rick was running the webinar. Rick Clark, we've had on the show, I think, end of season one. Maybe it was season two, I forget. But Rick is a 7,000-acre regenerative organic farmer in Indiana. We had Ray Archuleta on, who we also had on this season of the show. Ray farms and ranches down in southern Missouri, He's former NRCS, and he's a you know mega soil health consultant. Uh, they call him Ray, the soil guy. Lauren Steinloggy, uh, we've he's a friend of the show. Um, he's up in Northeast Iowa. Uh, Dave Brandt, Rick Clark, and Ray Archuleta have all won No-Till Innovator of the Year awards from uh, No-Till Farmer magazine. So like very accomplished. And so it was Dave Brandt, Rick Clark, Ray Archuleta, Lauren Steinloggy, and myself. So that's why I was like, just shut up and listen. And uh, and it was really, really awesome. So um, unless you guys got any other clarifying things, we can get into the first clip. I want to hear the magic. You want to hear the magic? All right. Yep. Yeah, you really excited. hyped this up. Let's go. We hyped it up. All right. So in this first clip, we're going to hear from Dave Brandt. We wanted to start there. Dave's going to talk about how traditional farming has changed over the past 50 years. And, uh, and then we're going to hear a little bit from Ray Archuleta here as well. So let's roll the clip and see what happens. Well, I think the biggest problem is that, you know, I know grandfather and I was a young boy then, you know, yep. uh, you take 70 years back. Uh, you know, he'd clean his wheat and I'd stand there, you know, you'd shovel it in the top of the cleaner, falls through the cleaner, you shovel it out, put it in the bag, tie it, you know. And then all of a sudden, a company comes along and here your wheat comes in a bag. So we no longer have to clean it, you know, we don't have to do that work. Right. You know, we get lazy. 
Yeah. You know, in the 70s and 80s, I could tell you every herbicide that was made. I could tell you every chemical name of that herbicide. I knew how long the residual was. Then all of a sudden, here comes Monsanto, and we come up with a Roundup product, and guess what? All I've got to know one thing, yeah. Roundup, it'll work. Yeah. You know, so we tend to get lazy. Mm. Maybe we want it easier. You know, we want it maybe as easy as the guy that goes to work from eight o'clock in the morning until three in the afternoon. He drives home and gets to prop his feet up. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what's really hurt a lot of things that we do because, you know, as you move to regenerative, whether it's with livestock or without livestock, you can still get there. Mm -hmm. But you have to learn to walk and manage and understand the context. You know, there you go, Ray. He says, yeah, I remember that word. Yeah. The context of what you're trying to do. Because uh, if, you know, you can do cover crops and you can plant into it, but if you go to Florida and you try to come back in September to harvest, there won't be anything there. Mm -hmm. And then they get discouraged. And I want to add to what David was saying. Look, let's face it. Farming and ranching is one of the most difficult jobs on the planet. You're dealing with an elegant system that changes every second, every minute. It's farming and ranching is difficult. It really is because you're dealing with dynamics that change. The weather changes every minute. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes farming and ranching has been looked as something that wasn't difficult. It was the lower type of people that went in farm and ranch and stayed. But really, the most brilliant to do what you guys do logistically and what you carry out on a regular basis is mind-boggling. Engineering's easy, guys. It's fixed. But farming and ranching changes all the time. Right. It's hard. So I thought that was kind of an interesting initial clip to kind of tee things up that, you know, Dave Brandt is, he's an old boy in this. He has been farming and uh, started using no-till, I think, in the late 60s. So, I mean, he's seen a lot of changes. And seeing how we've really tried to simplify a lot of things in farming which as a data guy, I try to do that too. But farming is a very dynamic system like Ray was talking about. It changes all the time. There's so many variables that we got to deal with. Um, and math and linear equations doesn't quite fix all this stuff. And especially as we're looking at regenerative ag, there's a lot of different moving parts to it. So it can be really tough and really challenging. I, Tara, I know you're you know, helping people to kind of navigate this. Like there's so many moving parts. How do you help them to understand how to navigate all these pieces? Yeah, I thought the clip was interesting from, you know, his historical knowledge standpoint. Like he just has so many years in this. And the second point that was interesting is I was recently at a, like a tech conference in agriculture. And one of the things we talked about was how we want to make tech make our lives easier. That, I mean, that's the goal of technology. That's the goal of data is to make better management decisions and make them easier. But I think I just agree so much with what he said that, you know, it's just not that simple. We can't, we can't always just be like, we, I mean, as humans, we want to just say, okay, here's the problem. This is how we fix it. This is how we do it every year. You know, this is it. And with regenerative ag, I think it is about changing that entire mindset. This is something Zach and I talked about on a recent um, episode uh, is that we've got to change our mindset to just grasp that it's going to be a little different every year, that we have to be like thinking on our feet, that we just, it's just not going to be this cut and dry black and white thing every single year. Like we, we so like humans want it to be. 
Yeah, I think that's totally right. And I've been, you know, like I said, as a data guy trying to figure out, hey, here's a program and here's kind of a system of how you can implement these things successfully. I mean, Zach, you've seen firsthand, it's not all rainbows and butterflies and the weather throws things out of whack every year. And we can try to control so many variables, but it doesn't quite work like that. Um, that Everything is changing all the time. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I like to hit on a lot is when I'm talking to people, I like to bring up the fact that, you know, <clears throat> you can look at, uh, you can look at farming in a technical sense and you can look at the numbers and you can push the pencil and you can say, this should equal this and X, Y, Z is whatever. But the fact is that farming is a huge part of farming is the art of farming. You can think you're doing everything right. And there's going to be something thrown at you that you got to deal with in the moment. And, um, it's just, it's always that way. It's been that way. You know, one of our recent guests talked about being involved in academia and how easy it might be for professors to say, well, you should do this, that, or the other thing. But when you really put your own skin into the game and you have to figure it out on the fly, it's not really that easy. And I'm, I'm a little bit, I, I feel a, a little bit offended by the fact that he called me lazy here. <laughs> and, and I, and I was I, wondering how you would feel about that. I, I know what he's saying. I, I totally understand what he's saying because I am not shoveling wheat and cleaning wheat and loading individual seed bags and into boxes on the planter. And I'm not out there, you know, sweating every day the way that my grandparents were. But as with any other industry, it's because we're using the technology that has become available to us. We're being way more efficient. And I think what happens is I wouldn't use the word lazy. I mean, maybe physically we're much lazier than we used to be uh, because we can be, but I think we fill that time and that space with something else like pushing the pencil and and management practices and figuring out how do we become even more efficient and how do we make the extra dollar? How do we spend a little less on inputs? Those kinds of things. I think we just fill that time that was spent physically shoveling seed and we fill it with something else. I, I I'm hesitant to say that we've gotten lazy, although I do enjoy getting away to Florida once in a while. I heard a speaker once talk about like the higher level of thinking, you know, like the easier, the, the more that we progress as a society, the more like we have time for higher level thinking. And I think that in that, that we have worked smarter and not harder, that we have more time. It gives us more time to think about, okay, now we're at a place where we're feeding our population. We've increased how much we can produce. Now we have the time to think about what does our soil health look like? Can we go back mm -hmm. and improve things? Like there's benefits to the fact of where we've gotten that now we can say, okay, we can improve on this, this, and this, like, let's do that. So spot on. And yeah, Zach, my, my head went to the exact same thing and Tara to yours. I mean, that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of stuff. And that, yeah, we, is the day-to-day -day, like physical kind of stuff we have to do as tough as what our ancestors had it? No, we've been able to scale the science here and be able to focus on the art. And that's why it was so cool to hear from these guys that it's just changed. We just have different things that we have to think about. But to Ray's point, we're still dealing with that dynamic system that it's still mother nature. That's our biggest variable. And we cannot fully control that. We can just use data, utilize the tools to mitigate against it. And that's what we get into kind of in this next clip here that, you know, Dave is then talking about kind of the gear and that, you know, as you look at trying to change your system that, you know, maybe you don't have to spend a ton of money to try to go and do this stuff right away that you've got to learn and you've got to utilize the tools that you have at your disposal 
to make sure that you're going to be successful at going and implementing. So here's that clip from Dave. I saw one that the Yetter had. It's uh, putting fertilizer or nitrogen on both sides. It's got double disc. It's got spike closing wheels. It's got a chain dragging behind <laughs> it, you know. And, you know, if you want to spend that kind of money, and, yeah, you better feel good about it. But I say if you're going to do it, just put it all on one row and see how it's going to work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I've, I've had my my gleaner or my white dealership call me and he says, David, this guy wants to spend $68,000 for attachments. What do you think? And I says, give me his phone number <laughs> because I'll tell him he can cut that in half. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, he's read all the information and it says, you know, we buy all this iron and put it on there. It's going to make it better. It don't make it any better. It still takes the management. And that's, that's why we have to have these schools to right. teach them what to look for. <laughs> You know. Well, and the the big carrying on the equipment and stuff like that. The biggest thing I see people struggle with. They all see where we're at today. Yes, they want to duplicate what we've done and do it in one day. So at the end there was Lauren Steinlogie kind of getting in that you know, hey, you can add all these fancy attachments. You know, like Dave was talking about, you can add, uh, update a bunch of equipment, but you can't necessarily just go and like copy and paste somebody else's regen program and expect it to work directly on your farm. Like you've kind of got to learn and experiment and test. But I mean, Zach, you've looked at that. It's really tough sometimes because when you're playing around with something on a small scale, even as small as one row, like Dave had had said there, it's tough to spend the time to focus on that one little trial and start small because it takes you away from the rest of your operation. Explain that because I think that's really important for everyone to understand as we go and help farmers to learn and, and experiment with implementing things like cover crops. Yeah. You know, I, I, I agree with them. Um, but there's obviously a balance there where you need to have the correct machinery to do something. And so you may have to spend some money and some time on having something else. Um, but obviously as with anything you're doing on the farm, you can outspend yourself way more than you need to. And and to the point where you're going to see a pretty big negative return on investment there, if you get talked into spending money on everything. And then, you know, you, like you talked as far as doing small tests. Well, we talked pretty in depth in past seasons about where, you know, it, it always frustrates me that somebody comes along and says, well, why don't you just try 10 acres? Well, I'm set up to run 2,600 acres on my farm with just my dad and myself being the only two full-time people here. Everything we do is stretched to the point where you throw a 10-acre wrench into that, and now all of a sudden I've got to come up with either another tractor or I've got to unhook an implement that I'm going to need that day to hook up something else to deal with 10 acres, and I'm going to spend all day doing one thing on a 10-acre piece, and not get the 800 acres that I need covered with something in that day to try to stay timely with the other 2,590 acres, right? So to me, if I'm going to try something, I want to make it worth it and I want to really see how it works. And I don't want to be frustrated by having to spend a, a large chunk of time on 10 acres. Because when you're talking about doing something at scale, 10 acres is just, it's just a pain in the neck. No, I, I, and I've definitely seen that too with you know, some large farms that, that are looking at, you know, changing things that, yeah, I mean, to them, it's going to be just as much time to do a couple thousand acre trial as it is to your point to do that, that 10 acres. I mean, you, it's going to take you as much time screwing around with stuff to do, 
you know, you know, 750 acres of your operation as it is for that little 10 acre chunk. But the problem is if you're trying this new thing at that bigger scale, it's a much bigger risk financially. Yes. So it's really tough to be able to go and stick your neck out there for that bigger acreage, even though logistically it would actually work a little bit different. Tara, is that kind of how it is for you guys too? Yeah. And I think one of the things that one of the comments made in that clip was like that this isn't going to work overnight either. So I think a lot of people may try something. Maybe they do take the bigger risk. Maybe they do the smaller thing. And if it doesn't like work year one, they're like, I'm out, you know, and this is, as we know, with regenerative ag and soil health, like it's a process, it's a multi-year process of getting, you know, your soils up to par and that it's not just this like magic, like what I think what he said was just like, they, people want to take what we've done and just have it happen overnight on their farms. And that's just not the way this works. And that's really challenging for people that when they implement something, we all, we want instant results. We want everything to be instantaneous now. Um, and that's, that's just not how it's going to work especially yeah with dealing with biology and stuff and that actually segues you guys are doing great setting me up for the next clips and stuff because the next one dave talks about how yeah at the beginning especially doing some of these things with no-till with cover crops like it looks different and sometimes it looks messy compared to having that nice you know black soil with that nice green growing crop on top sometimes um, it, you can have some issues at the beginning. In in our first year using cover crops, we lost $100 an acre trying to do this stuff. Now, we didn't know how to adjust our equipment to their last point. We didn't know how to adjust our equipment. We didn't know how to do this logistically, and we lost $100 an acre. Now, we've, we're a couple of years into it and have really been able to figure some of that stuff out. But you know, as we've said a lot of times, it's not all pretty at the beginning. And that if you're going to go this route, you've got to be committed. That's what Dave's going to talk about here next. I think another thing that we have to contend with, with going from conventional farmers to no-till, the soil is brown. So the plant comes up, it's dark green. It looks really nice. Yeah. Uh, when you're working with covers, it's kind of ugly. If you want to get the jest, it's mm-hmm. kind of pale yellow or something, you know. The crop don't look as nice in those fields. And that's something, a mindset, you know, farmers are proud of what they grow and they right. like to show that right. off. And it's really hard to sh- tell these guys that these crops don't look very well coming out of these cover crops till... It's later in the summer, mm-hmm. you know, and the proof is always in the tank. I don't care what you do. Mm-hmm. That's the yield part I like. You know, you can, the proof is in the tank. And right. when it does the same as the guy that's done a lot of conventional work and spent a lot of money and we still have the same yields, you know. Or you have weeds that you can't kill now. Right. Whatever. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's just, is, there's a mindset there that I think is really difficult for guys right. to overcome till they can see the benefit of what we're trying to do, you know. You know, we're, what we're saying is very simple. If you work with nature, she pays the tab. Yeah. If you work against it, you pay the tab. Right. Yeah. More costs, more inputs, so it gets more degraded. It's a pretty simple message. Well, I think there's a real simple way to make everybody understand how well we can do or how how poorly we're treating the soils. It's just, you know, everybody just goes, gets a six-inch PVC connector, drive it in the ground three inches deep, put an eight-ounce liter bottle of water on it, stand there. If it takes an hour for it to go down in the soil, you don't have very good infiltration. Mm-hmm. If it goes down in 10 minutes, you're pretty good. 
And I say, well, that's how we pay, get carbon credits paid. You know, if the water goes in the soil, you got carbon. Right. You know, and if it's gone, it's like at our house, it's gone in 30 seconds, you know, give me the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I love, you know, Dave's idea on if you've got good water infiltration, you got good carbon, and that's how we should pay carbon credits. I don't know that it's going to work out quite that way. Um, but, you know, when you do get your carbon built up, when you got organic matter, you can build up your water infiltration, build up your water holding capacity. There are some correlations there, but it's not it's not quite like that. But main thing of, of his point being that especially at the beginning when you're changing practices, the crop looks way different. And I've definitely had that experience. Yeah, Tara, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I have like two thoughts on this. The first one is it doesn't always look pretty. So we've been in experimenting for the last two years with canola. And when I take pictures to share on Instagram, my husband is like dies a little on the inside. He's like, oh my gosh, that crop looks like crap. Like, I wish you hadn't shared that photo. Like, and it's because it's been somewhat of an experiment. We've had a little bit of our canola blowout. We're in a massive drought. Um, it's getting a little better every year, but it, it's not like perfect. It's not perfectly dialed in. It's not what we're used to that. It's like, this is what it looks like when it goes in the ground. Um, and it's just been kind of an experiment when we lost part of our canola field, we ended up going back with oats and trying to figure out something else. And then by the end of the summer, we had a field that was half oats, half canola, you know, I mean, it was just kind of a mess. And so I do think that there, you got to like allow yourself some grace there that like, this is a learning curve here. And, uh, it's not always as like the pretty picture that we think of that we've done for so many, you know, decades, years, however long, you know, that you've been conventional farming with just like, this is what we plant. This is when we plant it. This is when we harvest it. But Tara, that ends up just being what a mixed green salad for your cows or what? I mean, they're, they yeah, it tested like, yeah, really fine. well with the nutrition nutritionist. So, you know, that was like the That's ultimate, awesome. you know, what does our nutritionist say about it? Um, and it was like, who knows, maybe this will be some kind of hybrid that that's what we like some kind of mix that this is what we end up doing, but kind of just being willing to, I guess, take that risk. Obviously the risk <laughs> is what yeah. stops everybody. But Zach, I mean, Tara is exactly right that it's, it's got to look pretty from the road. Everyone's going to talk. Yeah. And uh, the neighbor factor is a big deal in a lot of this stuff. I mean, you see that for sure. And you're exposing yourself to the world more than anybody else with all of your social media stuff. Like, yeah, I mean, you know this better than anybody. Yeah. So I, I think like what Tara's talking about here, the, the biggest issue is that farming is made up of small communities, right? I mean, I know... I can drive anywhere within 20 miles of here and I know exactly who farms every single field. And so I can, I can look at that and I can make judgments of, of my own. And I know that people will do the same, uh, you know, to us. So it is difficult to know when you have a field out there that doesn't look as good as the neighbors that you're going to be judged and the community might talk about it. And, you know, me personally, I, I understand that. I love a good black field with with the green corn coming through, a nice clean field, and everything looks perfect. But me personally, like you say, I, I'm out there. I'm exposed. I mean, I show the ugly crops, and we have just as many as anybody else. And to be totally honest with you, I get criticized no matter what I do. So I'm I, I just don't care. I mean, <laughs> if my, my fields can look as ugly as they're going to, I'm criticized every day for what I'm doing on social media. So. I, I don't give a rat's ass anymore. I mean, yeah, if my yeah. field looks ugly because I planted cover crop on it, so be it. I'm out there trying something, you know, and if it works out, the, the community's going to know that too. So I think you just, again, we, it goes back to the mindset there. Uh, the first year we planted canola, people asked us if we planted uh, mustard weeds. They thought that we were harvesting <laughs> weeds. Um, so one other point on this that I wanted to talk about is um, 
I just got back from a conference that we talked heavily about carbon credits. So the carbon credit, like, I feel like, I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole, but I think we have to at least address that comment. Like that is one of the challenges with carbon credits is it is so, uh, there's such a spectrum of what actually, you know, carbon sequestration is. We don't have that dialed in. And there is going to be a range of people that are sequestering more carbon than others with their soil. So it's, it's interesting, you know, obviously you said, I don't know, Mitchell said, I don't know how that's going to work exactly. I don't think any of us know how it's going to work exactly, but it's an interesting conversation to start having. Yeah. And we definitely don't want to go down the carbon credit rabbit hole here today, but I mean, to his point of Dave looks at it as if he's got carbon in the soil He's got good water infiltration and water holding and things like that. It's the outcome that he can see as a farmer, but we've got to be able to tell that story to the carbon credit buyers, to the registries, to the taxpayer, to the to the world to show that, hey, we are sequestering carbon, but we got a long road ahead. We're going to have to have another uh, couple of seasons of field work and you know, keep talking about carbon then. Zach, that's exactly what you want, right? More carbon talk? Yeah, let's just start the Carbon Talk podcast. <laughs> new episode daily uh, daily carbon talk uh yeah that that we still won't get to the bottom of it though zach no we wouldn't have any listeners either <laughs> that okay let's uh let's keep going here so uh dave is going to talk here next about uh you know some of the big benefits that he's seeing with regenerative ag and he's saying you know hey if you're able to really go this path, you can even set your own price and be able to get out of the commodity-driven system that most of us are are in here today. Things are just working uh, so much better because, you know, instead of calling ADM and asking them or Cargill or Bungie what they're paying, you know, we pick out a price and, you know, if our consumer don't like it, uh, uh, she goes somewhere else. But, you know, when it says farm-raised, we show them what we do. And, uh, you know, we're inspected by USDA. We're inspected by the federal government. You know, so just, you, you've created your own brand. We've created our own brand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and we're trying to work with other farmers to do this and reach out to other states that's trying to start and put together a group of guys that we can really maybe go to a larger supply chain, you know. Right. And we began four years ago with open pollinated corns. We're growing three varieties in. We're growing six different varieties of wheat. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that's been a fun experience because each one of those wheats at harvest time uh, takes – I have a silver cedar, which works pretty well because you can blow a lot of stuff out of it, and it blows a lot of stuff oh, on I, the ground. Here come. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, there, Dave was joking about how his, his combine – blows just as much seed out the back <laughs> that's what he's kind of harvesting when he's doing his small grains and stuff he's and, making uh, fun of his own gleaner his, his old equipment his own gleaner yeah. yeah yeah he's got the gleaner and uh and blowing a lot of seed out the back his silver cedar he calls it but an interesting piece with this and kind of kind of back in on the carbon stuff or that just this whole story is with blockchain with nft style uh data tracking. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for us to better tell our story and do kind of direct to consumer marketing at scale. And Dave's been able to basically sell everything direct to consumer. I don't think he has anything that's going through a commodity market at all anymore. It's all seed or it's food grade. They're milling on the farm. He's got his own seed company. There's lots of different things that he's been able to set up. 
And uh, so interesting, you know, that they're able to really diversify and tell that story. And it seems like that's where ag is going to go more and more, but we've got to be able to do it at scale, wrangle all of our data together, wrangle our story together, and be able to get it to flow in a manner that actually means something to the consumer so that it actually drives some dollars for all the additional data work and the tracking and the people power that's going to be needed to be able to make this actually scale. Yeah, this is an interesting conversation with the direct-to-consumer like market. A couple of things. I feel like there's a lot of farmers out there that's like, I don't want to do that. You know, like I don't want to get into branding a brand and doing it. And I, I'm glad they mentioned at scale that like somehow they're going to have to get together and like possibly have, again, like a co-op. My thing with that is, is I feel like that's the system we're in. Like that's how we got here is that like each farmer didn't want to individually sell each of their products. So they co-opted. And, uh-huh. and then the, the thing that the fallout with that, I think is pretty soon someone's going to want a stamp, a marketing stamp. That's like, especially if they get big enough, they have enough farms. Someone's going to be have to held to a standard. It's like, it gets really complicated really fast. And it, I think it works in a, it, it does work. I believe in the system, the direct consumer system, but it's just, I think that especially with through Elevate Ag, my work there with like trying to help farmers understand how they can share their story and monetize that story, whether it be like a direct consumer beef or something is it's just not for everyone. And so trying to figure out those logistics, I think the idea is really beautiful. It's a really picturesque. You have a regenerative ag farm, you're able to sell regenerative beef and the consumer loves that story. I also think that there are underserved communities and, uh, you know, food deserts. We've talked about that on this show already this season who are priced out of this, you know? And so I feel like there's just, there's so many logistics, so many different ways this conversation could go, but those are just some of my initial thoughts. Yeah, Tara, I'd say you nailed it as far as my thoughts as well. I mean, I love the idea. I think it's really cool. When I get, I get a lot of questions from people wondering how they can get into farming if they're not from a farm family. And the first thing I tell all of them is that there's opportunities out there for smaller farms to be able to hit some of these niche markets like direct to consumer find what that area wants, what they're demanding, especially if you've got population in your area to pull from, there's real opportunities there. So I love the idea. Um, I think there's there's huge strides and advancements and opportunities that are open to people that are willing to shift their farm to something like that. But I will fully admit that on my own end, you know, I've thought a million times about doing something different on our farm to try to take advantage of the brand that I have right now to be able to sell direct to consumer. But I haven't come up with first off what that would be and how we would do it because I I admit that my excuse to myself is how busy I am with everything else right now. So we're in the system currently that we are in and I'm just trying to keep my head above water day to day with everything else that we've got going on. Yeah, I'll add on a little bit to that. I'll second what you said. Like sometimes I'm like, here, I've built this platform. Should I figure out a way to like direct consumer? But it's just not a space I don't think that I want to be in. And on the flip side of that coin, from like a co-op perspective, we're a part of Select, which created Fairlife. So it's a premium brand. It's a markup. It's, you know, we have more data tracking. We, you know, do different practices for our cows, like everything for that Fairlife product. At the same time, our personal milk goes to Walmart brand cheese. 
Um, so it's like, I like can see it from both sides of the coin that like, I love the idea of that premium product of fair life. I think it's such a great brand and it meets such a great niche market of people wanting like, you know, a premium product that has different, you know, qualifications, different farming practices at the same time. Like I absolutely believe that like Walmart brand cheese should have the best quality milk as well, you know, like, but it's at a different price point. So how do you like balance those two, like very opposing ideas of marketing your product? It's a really good point. And I think, I think it is going to be the balance. I mean, exactly what you guys are saying that you can absolutely differentiate your product and sell to your local community, maybe a meat product, you know, like you're saying, kind of uh, like maybe a milk or cheese kind of uh, dairy product or, you know, selling seed coming off your farm, whatever. Uh, we're going down this route this year for the very first time. And I've got two acres out of our 700 that I'm doing it on. So starting ultra small, but it, I mean, Zach, you were talking about it before. I have the ability to do that because we're not trying, we don't have that much. So for us, two acres is the appropriate manageable size for this initial trial. I've got one acre of a red open pollinated corn, and I've got one acre of a yellow open pollinated corn. And uh, and I've got the ability to mill some of the on the farm or work with a mobile mill that I can mill the, the corn into flour, grits, cornmeal, but I can also sell some of it as decorative corn on the ear, sell it by the ear. And then I could set, I could keep some of it for seed for next year or to sell it as seed. So I've got multiple different options where I've got some consumer facing things. I've got some decorative kind of things. I've got some food grade things. I've got some seed things. Um, and that's just for two acres. We are going to take a quick break right now and we'll be back after just a bit. We're going to go to Rick Clark here. Rick was the one that was kind of moderating the panel. He's jumped in just a little bit in some of those previous clips. But uh, there was a question come in from the online audience asking a super specific question about uh, no-tilling corn into standing alfalfa. Keep it in mind that Rick Clark is all no-till organic. And uh, so we're talking about the row spacing and some some configuration kind of things here and kind of the extremes of where some of this stuff can go. I'm going to address a question that was asked already. I yeah. think there was a question asked about 10-inch corn into alfalfa. Let's talk about that. We, on our farm in West Central Indiana, we are on 20-inch row spacing um, with the corn planter. And we also do soybeans on 20s, and we do some drilled soybeans on 7.5-inch. Um on the corn, what we tried to do, I'm assuming you're talking about uh, an experiment we tried last year. We, and I think I messed this up because I didn't think about this correctly enough. I want density. That's why I wanted to go with 10 inch, but I failed to think about density within the row. So what I did was I took the population of what we plant on 20 inch, which is 40,000, and I cut it in half and planted a 10 inch pass, uh, a, a pass at at uh, 20,000 set over 10 inches and another pass at 20. That's where my fallacy was because the weed control within the row was horrible because the plants were about 10 inches apart. Right. I had them 10 inches apart 
left to right, but but within the row, I, I failed. Mm-hmm. And it also failed. The experiment failed. Now, the reason why I was thinking about this is because I have a 70-30 rule that 70% of the weed suppression is going to come from the cover crop and the other 30% is going to come from the cash crop canopy. And that's why I wanted to get corn to canopy as quick as we could. If I was going to do this again, which I probably will, I'm probably going to do something like seven, 60 or 70,000 population and then cut that in half and have 10 inch of 35 next to it at another 10 inch of 35. And that might work. But it's all about uh, trying to suppress these weeds because in the system we're in, we've taken that easy button of chemistry away. So Rick's talking about some pretty extreme stuff there to do 10 inch corn planting it at basically 35,000 population in the row. So kind of the same corn spacing that a lot of us use today for our 30-inch corn, really high density on his corn and uh, and going into the alfalfa. Now, I don't want to necessarily dwell on the exact system that he's talking there, but thinking overall about controlling weeds, controlling pests, controlling some of these issues that Mother Nature throws at us, I think we're going to have to continue to get more and more creative. Any quick thoughts on that? We don't have to dwell on this one too much, but just interesting to to hear, you know, getting pretty aggressive and pretty creative with how we can do this stuff with little to no herbicide. Well, I'm still, I, I know we don't want to dwell on the details of what he's talking about too much here, but 70,000 plants per acre, that's what he's talking about on corn. How How are you going to have a healthy stand? Right. So, and the key thing with a lot of his stuff, keep it in mind that it's organic, that he's not trying to raise 250 bushel corn and, uh, and doing it where, uh, you're trying to utilize, just spread out the plants kind of throughout the whole thing. That's basically solid seeded corn when it's 10 inch rows like that. But so he, he's got the total opposite thought process here of the 60 inch corn stuff like you've tried. Right. Right. But the 60-inch, we're going, yeah, so he's going more rows versus less rows. Right. And then I was squeezing the plants together in the row where he's talking about spread the plants out a little bit in the row, but also have them in narrower rows to be able to get to canopy faster and keep ahead of of the weeds. Um, Gets to be, you know, some pretty aggressive kind of stuff. But to your point, it's like, okay, can you have that many plants out there, get them to actually put on an ear and not just compete with each other and just be literally grass out there and have it all yellow and spindly and not actually produce an ear. Uh, I don't remember how much of this Rick has done. We'll have to, have to keep kind of tabs on it, but, um, you know, we've played around with different populations and stuff and planting corn in the row at 50,000 plants per acre in the row. He was talking about in the row being 35,000. Right. So he's got two rows, each at 35,000. So the overall spacing of the plant next to its neighbor would be similar to what you and I plant today. Right. But then you have one 10 inches over versus 30 inches over like you and I have on our farm. So... Uh, I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what happens with it. I personally, as a corn farmer, can't believe that you'd get much of a plant there that would be healthy. But, you know, I haven't done it. And Rick's a sharp guy. I've I've talked to him. I've listened to him talk. I've seen some of the stuff he's done. So uh, 
I mean, it would be something where I would just be curious to see what those results show. I'm glad there's guys like that willing to try things like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I'm jumping quite to it anytime soon here either. Uh, Tara, any quick stuff on this? This one's a little bit further out of your wheelhouse, but kind of as you're thinking, you know, chopping the whole thing, maybe that'd be fine. I know. I just got to say, I feel like this is a little, little outside of my wheelhouse. So I don't, I don't have a ton to contribute to this one. I'll let uh, you guys did a great job. Let's, I'm excited for the next clip. So. Next, we're going to talk about inter-row cropping, in, interseeding, intercropping. I forget exactly where we go with this clip, so I'll have to jump back in and uh, figure out, ex- try to remember exactly what we were talking. But this is Dave Brandt and Rick Clark talking about their personal experience with intercropping. We've tried some intercropping. Uh, I don't know whether it's just a difference in the location of looking at where Lauren is. Uh, you know, the crops are a little bit shorter, they're not as tall. Uh, and you know, when we try two or three different things, uh, our corn gets to be 14, 15 foot tall at 24 to 30,000, you know, yeah. and we have some suppression. So we're doing the opposite thing. We're looking to see what matures at the same days. We're fairly close to the same days. So we grow a lot of oats and winter peas or spring peas, harvest them together. Mm-hmm. Then That's we separate them. Separate. They're oats easy to separate. Real light. And, yes. Yep. And it seems to be working well. Uh, we lose a little bean, a little bit of, of oat yield, but we gain on the bean yield because uh, you know we're producing twelve to sixteen hundred pounds of of a yellow bean or a green bean mm-hmm. that uh, works well in our cover crop business, you know, and it just you know it increased our acres by double if you can do that, you know. See, and that's what I when I think of diversity, I think that's one of the three ways I look at diversity: the cash crop commingling or getting that synergy that we, I mean, there's so much we don't understand yet. So if we just keep throwing everything we can at it, we're going to start waking up more and more of these microbes that I feel like have been asleep for a long time. So on that one, they're kind of getting into one of the other principles of soil health, which is fostering diversity, trying to get as much diversity into your system, whether you're doing that with diverse cover crops, with kind of pasture things, whatever. But there they're talking about what I call kind of companion cropping, where you got, like in Dave's situation, you got oats and peas or beans growing together, and then you sort them out after. The main one that we've been doing is a relay cropping, where I've got my cereal rye growing as a cover crop over the winter, plant my soybeans into it, then I harvest the rye over the top of the beans, then come back and get the beans. But he's talking about kind of growing it all as a blend together. Tara, you were kind of talking about you guys did that kind of by accident before, but you're chopping it all. Do you guys have any of that stuff where you're taking the grain in that system, kind of like what he's talking there? Uh, funny you should say that. No, <laughs> everything goes to silage. Um, my brother, who was a dairy farmer, is now a row crop farmer, organic row crop farmer. And um, just recently, he invited us out to come ride on the combine because my kids don't know what a combine is. Um, so no, yeah, everything's going to silage. So it's a little bit different. But I think if there's one thing I took away from this clip is not necessarily any of the details, but the fact that I think the way to get you know, regenerative ag practices more out there is these great conversations of like, what are people seeing out in the real world? What's happening? Like, I just think farmers are such word of mouth people that I just appreciated like the dialogue back and forth of like, what are people seeing? What are some of the hardships? What, what's real world uh, regenerative ag look like? That's a great point. And, and in these clips, you know, we're just, we just kind of pulled a couple different odds and ends kind of items here to spur some conversation and to kind of tease out the whole clip. 
But that's what the whole three-hour conversation was really about, was all these different ideas, all these stories, all these different things that that each one of the, the folks on the panel was seeing, and then push each other on questions and push each other on, you know, what's worked, what hasn't worked. And I think that is this whole conversation that has to be continued to be had at scale is what works, what doesn't work. And can something like co-mingling crops and then sorting them out later, like, you know, maybe that's an option. Zach, what do you, what do you think? Like, would that be a way to be able to kind of maybe drive more of the conversation in your neck of the woods? Think about new cash crops and new crops that could be directly harvested for seed or for, for a different product. I like the way that they put that in their conversation where they talked about, you know, getting essentially, he said like getting more acres and that's one way to think about it. Sure. You've got, say you've got a hundred acre field out there, but if you've got two crops on it, it's almost like having an extra hundred acres without having to buy it. Right. So it's definitely, it's, at least in my neck of the woods, that is way out there type of thinking. But man, what a game changer that would be if you could figure out how to do that. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and that's so spot on. And it's it's definitely what's driven it for me as super small scale. I've got my little 40 acres and my land expense is $500 a year. I've got to be creative and and think way differently if I'm going to make it work. Because just doing my traditional crops I, and paying $500 an acre on the mortgage, on a 15-year mortgage, like it don't work. But doing the relay cropping, now that can really work. Doing the my two acres of open pollinated corn, the way that we've got it penciled out, it'll be way more profitable than probably the other 38 acres of that 40-acre plot. Those two acres will cover the whole thing. The problem is, how do you scale this stuff? Because then people will be like, well, why wouldn't you do the whole 40 acres with this open pollinated if it's going to be so profitable? Well, I got to make sure I've got a market. I got to make sure the logistics are going to work. So like this, how are you going to sort it? How are you going to plant it? Are they going to compete with each other too much? What if you get really dry? You got two crops out there competing for the same moisture. Like there's a lot of, of potential you know, issues that could happen there. The key thing for me in any of these things to diversify is know your market. Don't bite off more than you can chew. You know, avoid risk as much as possible. Um, but it's interesting to hear about, yeah, being creative and using what we have that they're not making any more land. So, you know, let's let's try. So, um, okay. So this next one that we're going to get into is a little bit different. You actually get to hear me talk here now for the first time. I told you guys, I didn't talk that much throughout this whole thing. <laughs> so you got to have one where I got to, I got to run my mouth here just a little bit too. So let's jump into that. I forget what this clip was. So uh, you guys can hear it with me. Well, that was the thing with like my wheat deal from before, you know, Hey, shoot. Well, yeah, we're going to leave some, but that's fine. It's going to fall back down. Who cares? Just but, seeding the cover on its own. But we got to remember now for folks that are raising wheat that's going to go into a market that you're going to sell, you've got to be careful about your volunteer rye now. Yes, absolutely yes. right. We have to be careful here. Right. So you got to think about now your rotation. We are probably not going to have wheat in a field that had soybeans because the way we raise soybeans is we're letting that rye go to maturity and you know some of those kernels are getting fertilized, right? And then you're going to have uh, you're going to have a beautiful field of wheat next spring, and you're going to see something out there about eight inches taller, 
And you're going to say, what is that? And your elevator man will tell you exactly what it is when right. he rejects every load. Right. So again, it matters on where, where's your end market. Our end market happens to be a dairy, so they don't care, care. about that contamination. So away we go. And, you know, if we do have a contamination, we, we have the ability to do it with a colored sorter, mm -hmm. uh, which is a Really, you know, that's uh, that's like buying six houses instead of one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's surprising you can actually take that rye out of that wheat, or you can take the corn out of the beans, or whatever. And this is a service that you also have for anyone that wants to bring you a truckload, right? Yes, sir. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so a couple different things to kind of unpack there. So at the end, Dave was talking about that there's color sorters, and there's some pretty high tech equipment that you can you know, sort back out some of these crops if you're going to do some things together. But the important piece of this kind of stems back into my initial item that I was that I was bringing up and that Rick w uh, jumped in on as well. We were talking about relay cropping. Like I said before, I've got my cover crop that I plant over the winter. Then I drill my soybeans into it just like normal. Typically, I would terminate the rye, typically with a herbicide, or Rick does it with a roller crimper because he's organic. So typically we would terminate the rye a couple, like a month and a half after planting. But in the relay crop, you harvest it. And I was saying, well, hey, if I blow a little bit of that rye or wheat out the back of the combine when I harvest, that's fine. I was going to plant a cover crop in the fall after I harvest the soybeans anyway. Sure, no big deal. But as we're looking at growing small grains, as we're looking at growing our own, and I'm doing it for my own cover crop seed, so as you grow your own cover crop seed, as you diversify, you have to think about those other crops that are in rotation that now if I've got volunteer rye out there and I'm trying to grow wheat, depending on what my market is, you can get a big no-no from having rye out there contaminating your wheat. And you guys see some of this in, in your neck of the woods more than in mine, where pretty much everyone's just corn soybeans. And I was Zach, you got to get a little outside of your direct neighborhood. But with all of these practices, you've got to think about the bigger picture, long-term implications. It's not just what it's going to do in that one given year, but but it's a multi-year kind of thing. You know, How do you guys see farmers, I guess, thinking about that and thinking about how creative we can get to make these things really work? That sounds complicated to me. When they're talking about separating <laughs> those small grains, you know, I don't have any experience with small grains, but that doesn't sound easy. And then you talk about, sure, if you've got to sort it out, you, you've got the color sorters and, and whatever. But I don't know how many bushels we're talking about here. There again, if you're doing it at scale, what are you going to sort 100,000 bushels? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I forget, Dave's got pretty decent scale with their operation and bringing it in from other people. But it's a great point that, hey, in both ends, you either have to have enough volume that buying some of the this equipment is going to be worth it for the amount of volume that you need to run through it to actually make the cost work, but also at what kind of scale can we do things like companion cropping? Can we do relay cropping? Can we really diversify some of these systems? It, it, you're exactly right that it's a major balance that's got to be had. I feel like I'm getting off easy. Cows aren't that picky. So, you know, if there's some leftover something, as long as the nutritionist uh, signs off on it, uh, we're doing pretty good on the dairy end. <laughs> Which is a great point. And that's was what Rick Clark mentioned off of the clip was, um, or in some of the stuff that we clipped out, was his market is to a dairy. 
So if he's got some rye out there plus some wheat, whatever, it don't matter. The cows don't care. The cows are going to eat it. It's got about the same value. No big deal. But for farms that are looking at relay cropping, and if you do have wheat in your scenario, or even just to use regular cover crops and let them get really big and aggressive, you've got to factor in some of these pieces and, and think uh, think holistically. So uh, what we're going to talk about here now is some of the, you know, taking this even to another level, what Dave is doing on his farm, talking about public variety soybeans. He's got some rye and, and some wheats and things like that too. Also the open pollinated corn. So for context, of course, most of what we grow in our operations is a GMO crop. That's what 90 some percent of all this is that we're talking it's GMOs. It's our, our typical stuff for high yield and for our commodity systems that we're in right now. And that's that's what most of us do. But this open pollinated stuff and also some of what Dave's going to talk about here with the open variety, these are off-patent genetics. Okay, so they're not protected. They're not hybridized. The you know, they're it's not illegal to be keeping your seed back and things like that. You got to be careful with these things if you're gonna grow your own seed and stuff. Um, but Dave has been able to really go that route. And one of the things that's interesting that they talk about is as you're really stimulating that biological system, that the natural interplay between the microbes and the plants is really important. And part of a potential issue in today's agriculture, we've kind of bred our plants out of that symbiotic relationship with the microbes to the extent that they used to have to do that. Because today we give the plants what they want with this synthetic, with the fertilizers. And we do that because we can get great yields and we can get the response that we want. And it works really well for our system. But if we're going to go the other direction, we might have to change more than just implementing some of these practices. So uh, listen to this. But well, you have some already coming, though. We have some Are coming, you able right. to talk about that, or oh, that's yeah. still top secret? I know. No, I know. There's probably some stuff you got to kill yeah. me that you already told me too much. But <laughs> you know, but some of that you've already you're already down this journey. Right. You're already pretty far into this. Well, and, and I think what Mitch is talking about is we talked about uh, public variety beans yep. that has the ability to pod and has the ability to branch. You know. And we started six years ago with two varieties, a, a two nine and a three two, mm-hmm. and we, you know, we planted them and they made forty two bushel, which is not great to talk about, mm-hmm. you know. But the last fall they made eighty seven, and they've been clean for six years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now about eighty percent of our bean ground gets that. We always buy some beans just to make sure, sure. that there's something not new in a variety that we like and. Uh, we're we're not using uh, GMO varieties. We're using non-GMO varieties. Right. Uh, they respond better than our GMO varieties do on our situation, with our big covers. Ours too. And uh, so we, you know, when you lose yield from a, a GMO, we just we just don't want to run that risk. Yeah. Right. You know, Rick, I want to say something. I'm glad you mentioned that and you clarified. Yeah. But I guess from my perspective, I've always wondered why. As farmers, we put ourselves in a situation that we got cut up with this one term that I've seen has been very destructive through our agriculture. It's called yield. <laughs> we used to store our own seed, and we had no dependence on anybody. But now we have been very dependent on seed companies, and it's all about money and control. So with all these clips, we're talking about like 
you know, some of these guys, they've been in this space for a long time. Like they are really, really far down this regen rabbit hole and really taking it to the extremes. Growing your own seed, keeping all that stuff back, you know, little to no inputs besides just letting the biology doing it and doing it with diverse cover crops to to stimulate diverse biology. It It's multiple years down the road and gets to that extreme level where the only focus at the end of the day is what's the actual profit. Well, I think that's with, with any farming, you know, we need to make sure that the, the bottom line is what pencils out. And yes, I'm with you as farmers. We want to see the big, that monster yield, right? That's always fun. But uh, I think most of us, at least at this point, are also aware that we need that bottom line to pencil out. So we're, we're looking at return on investment all the time as opposed to yield. And like you say, if you get that big yield without putting big inputs into it, I mean, that's the, that's the ultimate goal. 100%. Yeah. And I mean, from like a dairy perspective, I mean, it's still the same. It's still like, sure, we'd all love to brag how many pounds of, you know, our average pounds per cow a day is. But what did it cost you to get there? You know, what? how many inputs did you have before you hit, you know, 80 pounds, 85 pounds per cow per day? Um, so I think you do have to go back to like, what is actually moving the needle? I mean, isn't that with any business? Like what is actually driving your profits and not just what's getting you like, you know, thinking about sales even, you know, sure. Okay. Yeah. You can have you know, massive sales, but what did it cost you to market that, to put into those sales? And it's all exactly the same thing. What are your inputs versus what are your outputs? And we're just so hardwired at this point to think about yields, no matter what those yields are, um, versus what's actually making us money and what's just an input that isn't, it's giving us what we're putting into it, that there's no difference there. Totally. The key, the, the biggest thing with this though, is that yield is really easy for us to quantify. It's right there in the monitor. You see it and you stare at it for 15 hours a day while you're out there picking corn. But being able to calculate your true bottom line profitability is way tougher because there's lots of moving parts and there's lots of record keeping and there's more tools that are coming to be able to help us to do it. But a lot of times it's get big yield, keep the cash flow going, keep the banker happy and I'm good. And that actual bottom line profitability, we can kind of brush to the side if you can keep your cash flow going and and be able to go that route. But my my piece with any of these sustainability, carbon stuff, we've got to be able to have an easy to quantify scoreboard and an easy tracking system on how to create points. And with yield, we can do that. We, we know fairly well what drives yield for all of our farms and how to really drive mo- the, the maximum amount. And weather always throws things out of whack, but uh, we've got to have that scoreboard there and uh, make sure that's simple for everyone to understand. But uh, we got to take things one more level of of extreme here. In this final clip, we're going to wrap things up with Rick Clark, Ray Archuleta, plus Dave Brandt. They're talking about epigenetics here, which is growing your own seed or or your own livestock, things like that, fit for the context of your actual farm. Keeping your own seed or growing your own cover crop seed, like what we've been doing, it gets pretty in depth here, but really cool to think about, you know, honing in all of the science and the art, like you had mentioned before, Zach, dialing it in for your operation, your climate, your soils, pretty extreme. Uh, and uh, I thought this was a good way to wrap this up here today. Let's go another direction here. And then I want to get Ray in on this conversation. Let's go epigenetics now. I know you're selling 
seed and you you've got a seed company, a, yes. a cover crop seed company. I am under the I am under the notion that what I want to do is I want to I want to maintain the same seed and keep it on our farm year after year after year to gain that adaptability to our system, our context. Correct. Okay. What do you think about that, Ray? I think it's beautiful. I think nature does that for a long time. See, look, when we attended school, when we all, some of us that, or we, even in high school genetics, and for a long time in the universities, they taught that genetics is fixed. But they realized that's not true. See, when you think about epigenetics, think of a two-headed coin. On one side is the gene, the other side is the environment. They both impact each other. So coming back to what your point is, I want animals that are adapted to my environment. That's right. I want seeds That's right. that are adapted to my environment. You know, there are several regenerative producers that have raised plants in North Dakota that didn't think that it would ever adapt right. to that cold, but continually getting that seed and picking that seed and and picking that seed and getting that adaptability. And it takes a long time. And what you guys are talking about here is really an elegance of stewardship and being way more observant and, mm -hmm. and having this relationship with the natural system. Right. That takes uh, understanding the main goal. You guys are taking it to a level of trying to emulate nature and nature is adaptive every moment. Mm -hmm. And that's what you guys are doing with your systems. Mm -hmm. So it's beautiful. That's well, well, I think the neat thing about this is, you know, my grandfather and grandfather did this. That's I right. Mean, they had their little cleaner. Exactly right. And, you know, we're, you know, everybody thinks this is new and we're reinventing the wheel. No. You know, uh, and it's not. You know, we're just going back to where they were learning to do that. You know, the neat thing about my great-grandfather or grandfather that I worked with, you know, he started with two mules and uh, their rotation was corn going to sweet. From there... They had two years of clover hay, and from there they had two years of pasture, and then they plowed. So they only actually disturbed that soil once out of five years. Yeah. Today's agriculture, we disturb the soil at least twice a year, maybe three times a year. Right. That's where we're in trouble. So kind of an interesting piece of taking this all the way back to really honing in and building up your system within the fence, you know, within that uh, fence gate uh, of, of each of our operations and I mean, Tari, you guys are looking at some of this with like the dairy cows that you guys have are really fit for your system. And like, and now looking at, you know, can we do some of that same thing with the seeds that we're growing? You know, so I mentioned on our, like we've been growing our own cover crop seed for a couple of years where we grow the seed, plants that fall, some of that we're relay cropping again and being able to grow it again. And like, it's really adapting to my soils, my biology, my system. We're going to do the same thing with our open pollinated corn that some of the corn that looks really good that got the outcome that I want. I'm going to keep that seed. I'm not going to keep the little spindly ear and keep that seed back. I'm going to pick, get the good ones, you know, that, and utilize that the uh, outcome that we really want to be able to really get this dialed in for our own operations. But interesting to, to discuss, you know, again, it's, I think a balance of not every farm is going to be able to grow their own seed and be able to keep all their stuff back. But can we regionalize these things a little bit more? Can we just grow seed at a larger scale that's designed for 
a regen system, just like they have for organics and stuff too. Like they have organic seed. We don't really have that yet for corn that really thrives in no-till or corn that thrives in cover crops. But maybe there's an opportunity for some of that, like what these guys were getting at. So interesting, you know, kind of final clip on maybe where this can go to make farmers really self-sufficient and working together in uh, in some of those local communities. But uh, Zach, quick thought on, on that. What they're talking about here is really high level. Like that's a long ways out there. I, I mean, I think how long is it going to take Mitchell for their seed to adapt to their farm? I mean, they're talking very little that they're going to see probably in their lifetime or, or, or am I off base here? Potentially. So one of the things that we didn't have here was they were talking about some of the seed banks at like, there's some university ones, there's ones out West of there's the big seed banks where when they, you can order seed from them, buy it. And they send you like a hundred seeds or something like that in a packet, like a tiny little packet of these seeds. And you grow those hundred into, you know, maybe a couple thousand, then you grow those couple thousand into 10,000. Like it is to your point, multiple years where you're looking at, okay, I tried six different types of seed, really small scale. Three of them didn't work. Three of them look pretty good. I'm going to keep the three that look pretty good and take those to to a bigger scale. And yeah, it can take some major time. I don't know. It, it gets pretty extreme. But yeah, Tara, I mean, you guys are already, like I said, doing this kind of from the dairy side too, where there's genetics and desirable outcomes that are already driving some of these decisions for you guys. Yeah, I think thinking about it from that side, I mean, genetics of dairy cows are so advanced already that um, it's interesting to relate it over to the crop side. It's also interesting, like the idea, I mean, we talk about that with like our cattle, our calves, like being raised someplace else, moving them around, like how are they going to be adapted to different areas? So, I mean, it, I mean, it really does make sense when you just think about the basics of it, that finding, you know, using seeds that were, you know, evolved in a certain area and using those versus like you said, this, like mass amount of seeds that's just distributed all over the country versus like localized Um, from, you know, a specialty crop part of it. I know that here at New Mexico State University, they've been um, doing those heirloom varieties of chili. And it goes back to like telling that story that, you know, we've been breeding chilies for a long time to be hotter versus like flavor. Um, But it's, I, it's, I think it's a, for me, I only saw the chili probably last year. And so uh, very new to see if it's taking hold. How are they going to market it? How is it going to go out? Um, You know, there's a lot of steps from the seed to the table and all the steps along there to get you there. It's interesting. It's just another desirable outcome that it's not just the, the heat, but maybe it's those other flavors or it's the other nutrient quality items or, you know, that goes along with kind of that story. I don't know. I think it was just to me a, an interesting way to be able to kind of think, you know, kind of hear from how far these guys are thinking about taking some of this stuff and um, and where this can maybe maybe go. But uh, overall, I definitely encourage people to to check out the whole thing once we get it put out there. Um, interesting to hear some of these takeaways and and hear some of you guys' thoughts on it. That yeah, I mean, these guys are really deep into this. They've got some amazing things happening on their farm. They've been able to really make it work for their operations and uh, and working at scale. But it's, okay, how scalable beyond just these guys that are like super deep into this, you know, how scalable can some of these things be? That's where for me, it's 
take some of the concepts, take some of the ideas, figure out what can work for your operation, but baby step into this and, and get the right help. You know what we have not done this season? We have not heard Tara say the big three words that this podcast is famous for. I, I don't know what you're talking about. What what three words? Oh, you, it's a you big know, deal. It's a big you know. Deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, I'm dying a little on inside, but here it goes. Don't soil yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, she Maybe a little did, bit more enthusiasm, I mean, though. Yeah, come, let's go. Let's go. Okay, okay, okay. Ready. Here it goes. Don't soil yourself. I like it. We need to just clip that part up and just like post that. <laughs> we do. <laughs> just Tara saying, don't soil yourself. <laughs> don't soil yourself. <laughs> Grow up, Tara. Good job, Tara. You nailed it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad I could finally contribute to the podcast. So I, I mean, I, that's it for the field work today. Our show is produced by Todd Melby with lots of great help from Anna Canny. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media. Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator. Thanks to all the technical directors at American Public Media who help us record and mix the show. A special shout out to Johnny Vince Evans who traveled to Ohio for this show to record these farmers. And of course, be sure to check us out on social media. We are at Fieldwork Talk on all of the usual channels. And we'd love it if you would write us a review to help other people find us. Don't forget that we like hearing from you. Give us a call with your comments or questions at 651-228-4810. That's 651-228-4810. Don't soil yourself.